Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. This morning's reading is from Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. You may be seated. Uh, well, Good morning. My name is Ryan. I'm the other pastor here. You guys got to meet Brian earlier. Um, I will not be preaching in Mark today. Brian will not be preaching in Mark today. We're going to take a one-week break from Mark. I know we just got started. Um, but I wanted to remind you guys what we're learning in Mark. Right? We're learning that um, when Jesus comes and announces to us, hey, the kingdom of heaven, it's here and then he calls us immediately after that declaration to repent and believe. What we're learning is that the life of a Christian is a constant unlearning our way in order to relearn the way of Jesus. And we're not going to deviate from that broad general message this morning because our guest, Dr. Tim Kimmel, is going to be preaching a lot on grace. And the reason that that connects to Mark is because um, in, in Matthew I believe it's Matthew 5, Jesus says, you have heard it said. And then he quotes an Old Testament or he quotes um, a Pharisee. He quotes some teaching, some tradition that's uh, in Israel at the time. You have heard it said. And then Jesus says, but I say to you. Now you have heard it said, be nice, right? But Jesus says to us, show grace, receive grace. Show grace. And the difference is that being nice is for us. I'm nice so that you don't think I'm rude. I'm nice so that I make it higher up on your list of favorite people. But Jesus says, now I say to you, receive my grace so that you may show grace. Now Tim's gonna use this word grace a lot and so I just wanted to define quickly so that he has freedom just to say whatever he needs to say about grace. Grace is not giving other people what they deserve or what you think they deserve, right? It's withholding some, some form of um, punishment, right? We've, we've got mercy and grace that are kind of like two sides of the same coin. 
mercy, withholding grace, giving what people don't deserve. We're withholding punishment, but then we're also giving them kindness. We're, we're showing forgiveness. And Jesus repeats this throughout the Gospels, and you see it proliferated throughout the letters of the New Testament. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Love as you have been loved. And how do we grow in this if we're not preaching the gospel of God's grace and love to ourselves and receiving it when it's preached to us? Another um, probably more contemporary label for this type of, of, of living and thinking is gospel-centeredness, right? Are, are you all familiar with like gospel-centered marriage, gospel-centered community, the gospel-centered life, exact same principle, okay? So I just want to welcome Tim up to stage. Uh, he's going to preach for us this morning. Yeah, thank you for, I got to meet Tim um, on Friday, and it felt like I, I just got to meet a friend I haven't seen in a long time. So please welcome thank you. Tim. Thank you, God bless Thank you for being here. There you go. Yeah, you come to church and, and you get a guest speaker and then put up the slide that we're going to talk on here. And this will really, um, then you say, and he's got a specific subject that you don't feel you need to learn about. Because I'm talking on marriage and some, a lot, probably a lot of you are, but some of you aren't. Or you're married, you think, don't need any help, we got it down. If you do, play, if you think that, play, pay very close attention to what I'm saying, because I don't think we ever feel that way in a married life. I also love the spirit that I feel in this congregation. I love what you guys are doing here. Uh, don't get weary in well-doing. We need this church to thrive and be a, a, a great light here. But I do want to, they, they asked me to dial in on God's grace to a specific type of relationship but regardless of where you are in your marital status, what I'm going to share is going to be take home for everybody here. Uh, because when I, when I think of God's great ideas, marriage is right up there at the top. Um, the biggest and greatest idea he had was redemption and the cross and saving us from the mess that we created of our life. And then when we bring that center stage to marriage, it's even better. But you got to know going in that uh, marriage is wonderful. It's a lot of work. Um, there's, there's a lot of competition out there trying to undermine what we have. And then when you figure, you know, just getting married, you don't realize on your wedding day that you're bringing together some things that you maybe didn't pay attention to going in, but you'll be, you'll be eyes wide open going as you go through, and that is you're, you're bringing together your assets and your liabilities, your common beliefs and your differences of opinion, your mutual goals and your personal agenda. And so as we get married and we start into this journey, we find this all out. I married a wonderful girl. I met her in high school, so taken and smitten by this girl. She was pretty and smart and charming and great and all that stuff. But, you know, I'm a ready, shoot, aim type of guy. And so, uh, but she's a ready, aim, 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 aim type of woman. So she's very deliberate. She risk factors. She thinks that through. So it took me five years to convince her of all the untapped potential that was deeply embedded in me. But we ultimately married. Uh, I wish you could meet her. She's, she's really a wonderful girl. 
And this past August, we celebrated our 50th anniversary. Boom. See, I, I, I know you're very kind to applaud, and, and thank you for that. Uh, but, but let me just be honest with you. Uh, we, could, we could have uh, celebrated that anniversary, and it was simply a milestone of two people that got married and didn't get divorced for 50 years and didn't die. It doesn't necessarily mean that what we had along the way was anything worth writing about. But our marriages can be. But, it, but going in and then going through, you find out that there are some challenges and some, some things that maybe take you by surprise. I, I wish that there was a, you know, for, for instance, like I, I like to get down, mark dead-end roads every once in a while just to make sure they go nowhere. My deliberate, forethought wife just has problems with that sometimes. I have often had dreams for she and I that eclipse my ability to make them come true. And then I brought a kind of a redneck practicality to the arrangement that I thought would be highly welcomed until she saw it in action. Um... For instance, you, you, you know, it, it, if there was a basic list of, of, of life skills, somebody just kind of assembled, these are the basic life skills that just about everybody should know, and then you quiz each other before you get married, just say, I'm just curious, you know, how you, you know, like, for instance, they said, can you cook? If she'd have asked me before we got married, my answer would have been, no, I, I never learned how to do that. And if she would ask me now, 50 years later, I still haven't learned, I don't know how to cook. Uh, she's a great cook. She's good at that. But she doesn't know how to turn anything that requires a, a, a tool or it needs to be pushed like a lawnmower. And that's fine with me. I love to do that. We figured it out. That We even it out. But, but now I can make cereal, a bowl of cereal. If you need that, I can do that. Um, you need some ice? It's in the fridge. I, I, freezer. I can pull that out for you. But otherwise, I don't know how to cook. The problem is when she goes on a trip and leaves me in charge with the kids. And she did one time when we were younger. We only had uh, three kids at the time, and she was leaving. And because she knew I couldn't cook, she made all their lunches in advance and put them in the freezer. And then she uh, bought these kind of meals that you just stick in a microwave and heat up. The first night I saw she'd put on a little, get this particular lasagna out and uh, microwave it, feed it to the kids. She clarified which one to get. I did not pay attention to that. I just saw the word lasagna. I look in the freezer. There's a lasagna in a box. I open it up, found out that one won't fit in the microwave. That's why she told me to open the other one, but it's already open. I got the biggest knife in the drawer, tried to cut it in half, but that thing was brick hard. It wouldn't budge. But once again, redneck practicality. I thought, you know, men love tools of mass destruction. I got something in the garage that can solve this problem. And I went out there, and my skill saw is there, and and, this will work, and I put a towel on the floor, and I put the thing over the edge, you know, right through it like it was a piece of butter. But as I was doing it, the garage door was up, and I'm backlit because it's just after dark, and there was a, a, a student, a college student in our neighborhood. This was years ago. He was actually selling magazine subscriptions. They used to do that. And he was approaching just as I did this. And so I hear him yell, sir, sir, may, may I speak to you? And I came walking out with a skill saw in his hand, and Half lasagna in this one. Yeah, man, what's up? And then he looked down at my hand, and then he looked over my shoulder. Did I just see you saw a lasagna in half? 
yeah, I'm fixing dinner. And, and you know, that's all the more he wanted to hear from the nut job at this address. But I, I fed the kids, and then Darcy called uh, to check up on them, and they all get on, and they're reporting. But our third board, uh, Shiloh, who is also AKA the informer, uh, she, she starts at mom, guess what? And then uh, rats me out. The point is, there's, there's competition. There's, it's not that easy. When we start to see who we really are, I didn't know, for instance, early on we got married. Um, she, um, I'd gone to bed because I had to get up real early, and then she finally comes in, and she pulls up next to me, and then I hear her say, did you lock the front door? What? Did you lock the front door? Well, it's not difficult. You just turn the little knob there thing, thingy towards the, the jam. My father always locked the front door. We'll call him up and see if he'll come over and lock up. I'm, I'm asleep. We didn't know this going in. And yet, God had a strategic plan for this thing called marriage. And when you see how it's played out, this strategic plan in Scripture, you realize that what he was calling us for is it's a whole lot more than just signing some papers, having some witnesses, having a little party, and going on and having some kids and trying to you know, have an address and maintain some things. What he meant for us to do is write a love story as we're going through marriage that brings glory and honor to him. Genesis chapter 1, right out of the blocks, he, we, you have this uh, unpacking of the creation of the world. And, and in verse 26 and 27, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. By the way, if you wonder if the Trinity's in the Bible, let us make man in our image. Plural. And, and let, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds and the cattle and, and all the creeping things and everything like that. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Genesis 2. It's another Look at the creation from a different perspective. And he unpacks that. He concludes in verse 24 and 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were, were not ashamed. So he's created this couple and he has to configure them some way. Now he could have turned them into a committee or a corporation or a country club, but he's not going to turn them into a family. And, and, and that's my, 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 my main strategy for how I'm going to transfer my heart from one generation to the next. It's on this family. Now, unfortunately, I think we're living in a time where our culture is far more interested in weddings than it is in what follows. I saw this illustrated out in, uh, we live in Scottsdale, Phoenix area. Think Texas with a low self-esteem. That's Arizona. And... Um, <laughs> We, we live out there, and, and there was a, a lot of people get married uh, outside, you know, and the, we have golf courses, and it's a, a favorable weather. And this couple was getting married right around dusk on one of our golf courses, and they had the means to put on quite a wedding, 
and they wanted to really have a wedding that no one would ever forget. They went to their pastor to perform it, and he said, well, if you want me there, you've got to go through our marriage prep course. Well, they did, but he could tell their heart wasn't in it. He knew their heart was The main thing they were interested in is having a major wedding, impressing everybody. Well, you know, along the way of their plans, they, you know that part in the wedding where often, you know, they two become one, they take like two candles and light one, or they braid ropes together, or they, um, uh, two different colors of sand, I've seen that. They heard about a guy that had two doves, and he had a blue ribbon around the neck of one and a pink one around the other to represent the, 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 the groom and the bride, and they were in separate little uh, cages up here, and he showed them how you'll reach in here, and you turn around, and you, you, you let them go, and they'll fly up, and it looks very beautiful, and it, this is going to be awesome. No one's ever seen this before. So there they go, and they came to the point, and the pastor said what he told them to say, and they let their birds go, and they flew up, and it was really quite impressive, except Arizona has a large hawk population. And there was one up there that swooped down, and they're not sure whether it was the head of the groom or the bride that got lopped off, but that thing hit it was almost an explosion of feathers and blood, and just flew away with that thing in his and sucked the oxygen out of that crowd, but the couple got their wish. No one ever forgot that wedding. I mean, you got to under the, the point is there are hawks out there. And we're supposed to be writing a love story, but there's some things out there that are going to make that a whole lot tougher if we're not paying attention. And yet, if someone were to kind of just, let, let's summarize a big picture thing of what we're supposed to be doing in our marriage, I think, I think the key to having a mutually satisfying marriage, look at this, is contingent on our ability to maintain passionate and empowering heart connection with each other. Heart connection. You want to write, write a love story, you need to have heart connection on an ongoing basis. Not just connected by an address or connected by a bank account or when the opportunity arises, connected at the hip. It's connected at the heart. And this requires a deliberateness, but we have competition on the outside that's trying to build, put a wedge between our hearts, but we also have competition on the inside, that we individually bring to it all. I want to talk about that for a second. Because I, I don't think we realize that we often have a way, a perspective of looking at our spouse that can really undermine our ability to write that love story. And it's not that we're bad people. It's not that we're trying to, to be mean-spirited. It's just that we're human. And we do have a selfish bent to us. And some of that is designed to kind of protect us. But when it gets, slips over the line, which it easily can, it can get the best of us. And by the way, I'm not, I hope no one's taken offense that I might be suggesting that we're selfish. Because the best way to you keep, for any of us to keep selfishness in check is start today realizing how capable we are of being it. It's like AA, you know, one of the most successful programs out there to help people with alcoholism. What's one of the first things out of the mouth if somebody stands up to share? Hey, I'm so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. Why? They say, don't kid yourself about what's, what you're struggling with. And that's the best way to say, but I don't want that to control me. I don't want that to be in charge. 
And same thing with our selfishness. And, and, and what I want to do is, uh, it's, it's like we have these lenses we look at each other through. And we can drop these lenses down when it happens. And it, this is, if you saw National uh, Treasure, these are the Ben Franklin glasses, but I think the perfect thing to illustrate this because we all kind of come into marriage and we don't realize we have one of these Ben Franklin types of things that we can drop a lens down in front that, that determines how we're viewing our spouse and, and therefore treating our spouse. For instance, one of the lenses that's easy to drop down is the me lens. The me lens. This is a lens where the person looking through that uses a lot of singular personal pronouns that were supposed to be plural. They talk about, you know, my needs, my happiness, my time, my money, my space, my wants, my kids, my sexual desire, or my lack of it. And this puts a strain on the other person, big time. Now, obviously, there can be, there can be uh, you know, degrees of this. I think all of us, in a minor way, struggle with this. All of us do. But if you go way, way over here, you got narcissism. And anybody that's been around somebody struggling with that, it's just a very uncomfortable situation. To, it's hard to thrive and have joy in. And yet, when you think of the passage of Scripture we looked at today... Paul comes to us in Philippians, and among other things, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, look, in humility, value others above yourself. Not look into your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That's a tall order. I think for most people who don't know God and don't have a heart for God, they would think this is absurd. It just seems so beyond belief. But then he goes on to to build his case for why he's asking us to do that by showing that that's exactly what God already did for us. He goes on to say, "Let this have, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although God, did not consider all the privileges of God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself, not of his deity, but all the privileges, and he took on human form and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And so Paul's saying, I'm not asking you to do anything that God hasn't already done for you. But that me lens blocks that, keeps us from coming through for that. Then another lens it's easy to get involved with is the, the love if lens. And this is, this, this is kind of a scorekeeping type of attitude towards our spouse, where we're just kind of keeping a running tally of how they're doing compared to how we're doing. And we usually, there's an old saying that uh, every mule thinks his load is the heaviest. And so we just kind of assume we're pulling more of the weight around here than they are. And, and, and this can become very quid pro quo. You figure, well, if that's how, if you're not going to pull that much, then I'm not going to pull that much. And one of the, you know, one of the dumbest pieces of advice I've heard married couples get is that someone will say this is a 50-50 arrangement. You do your part, you do your part. I hope you can cut it down the middle. It is not a 50-50 arrangement. You're supposed to come into this as a spouse and say, I've got to give 100% whether they give anything in return. It's a unilateral commitment to love that person. And some people think that this is how God treats us, that he's a scorekeeping God. This is, he's not. But there's a lot of people, even within the Protestant movement, 
that, uh, or the Catholic movement, just assume that God is keeping a tally, and that's going to determine what He thinks of us, how He treats us, and how he, whether He loves us or not, or whether He withholds any of that love, and all that stuff. That, and everything I just said there is not in the Bible. God isn't caring for us based on how we behave, because if He were, we'd be dead. Psalm 103. Fabulous psalm on this very subject, but in in verse 10 he says, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. But besides this this me lens in this uh, love if lens, there's also a lens that we can easily drop down called, I I like to call it the pious lens. We know our way around the Bible. We've got a a, a tear-stained prayer list. We have a good service record at church. It's easy to do, and then use that to leverage against our spouse to get our selfish agenda met. I've seen people take that very verse that we talked about in Genesis 2, you leave your father and mother and cleave your, and use that to block grandparents from access to kids just because they don't like the in-laws. I've seen men take scripture out of context to not allow their wife to style her hair, or be fashionable, or wear makeup. I've seen couples take the, the, the teaching in Ephesians 5 is one of the standard things that, that pastors always often turn to on, on, on marriage, and weaponize it. So it's easy to do. And, and, and yet God says in James chapter 1, be doers of the word and not just hearers only, deluding yourself. So finally we realize what we're doing, and we think, oh, I don't want to be this way. I, I don't. Uh, this, they, they deserve better, so I'm going to change. I'm going to put a whole lot more effort and play my part well and caring for them, and we give it our best shot. The problem is we go about it the wrong way, and we end up right where we started. To illustrate this, I'd like to invite my wife to join us by video, and we'll try and make that point for you. Watch this. Which brings up a fourth lens that I think makes a lot better sense to look through if you want to write a love story that goes a distance, and that's the same lens that God looks at you and me through, and that's the grace lens. That God is looking at us in a way that sees way beyond the junk and the shortcomings and the idiosyncrasies and the frustrations to something that he that he he deeply values, values enough to lay it all on the line on the cross for, to save us from. Uh, let me show you some scripture on this. Second um, Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. It says, And God is able, look at this, to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And so we can bring grace center stage to our marriage. And, and you know, it, grace is not supposed to be confined just to salvation in a Christian world. God meant for it to wash over us, to completely redefine us and become the default mode of how we deal with the people up close to us. How it, it, it dominates the relationships. We want to be people who are guided by God's truth all the while, tempered by His grace. And, and, and this gives us a chance to have grace-filled marriages, and I can define that in one sentence. And it's simply treating your spouse the way God treats you. That's all it is. And, and uh, one of the resources that we put together here 
several years back, is a book that unpacks exactly what God's active applied grace looks like. It might be, I think we have some here at the end, and he can point you to them. Well, I got to land the plane here. Let me, let me kind of set the stage for this by telling you about an incident that happened. I, I um, decided I wanted to run a marathon. The mistake I made is I waited till I was 50 to make this decision. And, uh, you know, they don't shorten it just because you're getting too old to run it. Um, it's still 26 point some, 26 miles and, and all. But I, I signed up and I, I wanted to go to a good venue. So I thought the New York City Marathon would be great. But you apply for it, but you don't know whether you're going to get in for several months. I put my app in the mail in January, but I started putting a lot of miles on my shoes in the meantime. April, I found out I'm there. First Sunday in November, we're, we're, uh, we're at the starting blocks. And, and where this thing stages down on Staten Island, uh, right next to an old revolutionary fort called Fort Wadsworth. And, and before you're done, you're going to run through uh, you know, the five boroughs of New York City. There was about 35,000, 40,000 of us there. We were there several hours early. And um, <laughs> I looked over by the old brick wall of this old fort, and I saw a, a lady there, a young uh, runner, and she had decorated her shoes, and she had a bouquet. And the guy she was with, because yeah, they had numbers on, you know, uh, I knew they were runners, and he had a T-shirt like a, a tuxedo, and they brought a preacher there and a couple of friends, and I saw a wedding going on. And they got married right there. And the way they're going to celebrate their marriage is have run a marathon together. I thought, awesome, we ought to require this of all married couples. <laughs> you know, get married, put on your shoes, run 26, point, 26 miles, 385 yards. That's what you just signed up for. You signed up for a marathon. Well, when you apply for this race, uh, they, they ask you, what kind of time you hope, what are you training for? And that's going to determine your number, where they set you in a group. And um, all the Kenyan runners had single-digit numbers. And, <laughs> uh, but I had a big five-digit number. What turns out, this young couple, much younger than me, they, they were in the same kind of block with me. There were probably several hundred of us there. And so I saw them when they got married. And then the next time I saw them, we were across the bridge and over into Brooklyn a couple of miles. And he was over in the side and he was throwing up and, and she was rubbing his back and patting his head. And he, he apparently uh, celebrated a little too much after the wedding. And, and I thought, get used to that, man. You're going to do that a lot, you know, comforting and all that stuff and dealing with misery and well, then they got back on, and they, they passed me, because remember, they're much younger than me. And I did, I did not see them till I was all through, you know, Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, up through Bronx, coming down into Central Park, uh, maybe a little over a mile from the finish line, and she was down this time, crying hard, both shoes off, blisters on her feet. And if you know anything about running, distance running, it, it, you can't, it's hard to proceed with that. I felt so sorry for them because they'd made it so far. But, you know, it, it reminded me how tough marriage can be. Well, there is a way, though, I think that we raise the odds that we can finish strong. And, and, I, and, and I, it has everything to do with where we put Jesus in the equation. In fact, he's not supposed to be part of the equation. He's supposed to be the life. He's supposed to be center stage. 
And in the process, it gives us the ability, I think, to go through all of the, you know, the challenges that come with it. You know, let, let, me, let me see if I can kind of summarize this final point here I'm trying to make with, with this statement. You know, I, I think as followers of Jesus, it would be very easy to think that the best way I can deal with my spouse and love them as I take my love for God and then I just show it to them and, 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 and pour it over them. That sounds like a great idea, except that's not biblical. Here's, this is more the biblical thing. It's not, it, 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 it's not my, my love for, uh, it's not my my love for God, but God's love for me, I want to show them. What's the difference between my love or your love and God's love? Well, my love and your love is limited. It just takes a matter of circumstances and time for it to run out, but God's doesn't. And, and as it comes through, it changes everything, but, but that would require, I think, one thing, there's one word I think if we could add this to our daily plan, As married couples, we raise the odds, radically raise the odds, that when it's all said and done and you get back, you get towards the end of your journey as a married couple, you can look back and and somebody was recording along the way, this is a great love story. And that is the word pursuit. We want to stay in pursuit of our spouse's heart. Now, for those of you who are married, there, there was a time when you were in deeply in pursuit of each other's heart to try and win each other's heart. Then you got married. Well, a lot, guys often treat it like fishing, you know? Okay, landed the fish, that's it. No, no, no. You got to keep pursuing their heart until you take your last breath. But I think it's a whole lot easier to maintain pursuit of your spouse's heart if you maintain pursuit of Jesus' heart. You see, Jesus is always in pursuit of ours. But when we reciprocate and we make his word a part of our daily life, we, we, we come to him in, in humble prayer on a regular basis and, 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 and we, we, we make sure that we have enough contact with his people to have that, that kind of that, that, that uh, locked arms with the right kind of people to get through some of the tough stuff that's going to come our way with all of us. Look, my wife just was diagnosed with uh, Parkinson's. There's a, these things come along. There's a reason why the preacher says, repeat after me, these vows. Sickness and health, good or bad, rich or poor. Because we don't know what's out there. But when it comes your way, the kind of track record you have up to that point plays a big role in what things are going to look like beyond that. And for one thing, I have found it's given me a chance to show love to her that I did not have a chance to show because she didn't need that kind of love and care. But, 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 but it's a great way to honor each other. And I know if it was the other way around, she'd be right there for me. But, but you don't know what's out there, but you stay in pursuit of each other's hearts. And it, it moves from a thing of you have to do something for each other, you get to do something for each other. And I think it, 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 it gives us, when God's grace is in place and we're in pursuit of his heart, there's, there's some wonderful qualities that just automatically start to show up that are straight from his heart, like humility, 
gratefulness, generosity, servant spirit. And, 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 and when, you, when you turn those things around and you bring them to some of the standard challenges of marriage, just think what humility, gratefulness, generosity, servant spirit would do when you, in your attitude towards your kids, uh, t- towards your money, towards each other's bodies, towards in-laws, uh, towards uh, each other's um, interests, each other's burdens. How about come to, when it comes to meeting each other's sexual needs? Humble sex, grateful sex, generous sex, servant-hearted sex. This, this is, God wants to have center stage in our life through his gracious heart, and we're showing it to each other. It, it changes everything. I'm, I was really glad, too, that, 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 that Ryan pointed out that grace and nice aren't synonyms. They're not. And you're, you're absolutely right. Nice is, nice is a human thing. And many times it's done to manipulate or to be, a, it, sometimes it's a form of coward, cowardness. Because real grace, real grace, it, it show, shows a love that we know has a price tag to it, but we're willing to pay it. And, and, and real grace has boundaries. Real grace has consequences. Real grace uh, speaks the truth. He speaks it in love, but it holds it holds it down. And we can do that for each other. Let me close up. I cross the finish line at that marathon. And when you do, um, they put a little ribbon around your neck with a medal on it. And they wrap you up in a space blanket because the temperature is a lot colder now than when you started. And they hand you a lunch. And uh, when I finished, boy, my, I, I didn't realize I was, I was hypoglycemic. I just burned up all energy. And I, and I looked down, I saw an apple in there. I'm going to eat this before I go try and find Darcy. She was out on uh, Central Park West, and I just felt like it was almost like another marathon away. Uh, so I sat down to eat the, the apple to get some energy. People kept coming across the finish line. And as I looked up, I saw them coming. And they were more, they weren't running across, they were hobbling across. And they had their arms around each other, and they just looked like they had been dragged halfway around behind a truck or something, or maybe run over by it, that, that couple. And they're just working their way to get there, and finally crossed that line together. Her, you know, her, her shoes were a mess. Her hair was all, they're all sweated up and muddied up. And they came up and they did their little, the, the people put the medals on them and the space, and then I saw them just kind of fall over to the left there into the park. And I hobbled down there myself, all stiff-legged to see them. And they were just holding each other. They grabbed each other and they're holding each other so tightly. They finished. And that's what God wants us to do. It's not going to be easy. You know, the, the, the New York City Marathon's fairly flat. But the marathon we have to run sometimes in our our marriages is uphill. There's people cheering you on the whole way on that thing. There's rock bands playing and Saturday. We don't get that. Sometimes it's lonely. But God will never leave us or forsake us. And he wants to do something great on you, for you, with you, to you, and through you as a couple for his glory. Brother, come on up here and have the last word. Thank you, Tim. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Um, we're going to move into communion, but before we do, it's my turn to preach. Uh, just kidding. Um, I have to say just kidding or you guys don't laugh sometimes. What 
Dr. Kimmel just spoke to us about um, is not limited to those who are married. Um, Tim wrote, literally wrote a book on what he just talked about, and he wrote other books. Um, they're out in the cafe. I'll, I'll remind you of those later, but the other books that he wrote is taking the exact same framework and principles and applying that to parenting, applying that to grandparenting, applying that to, um, he's got a book called Grace at Work. If any of you are wondering, how do I live this out as a single person? Um, and when Jesus says, love your neighbor, my neighbors, my closest neighbors are my work neighbors. This is the same principles. And Jesus in um, John 13 gives us this new commandment. He says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, this new teaching, this new instruction. You have heard it said, but I say to you, love one another. How do we do that? Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. The hard part of this is that this is a room full of stories of brokenness right in that commandment where we have failed to love one another. It's not just for married couples. And so we're gonna, we're gonna participate in communion together as a church body. If you are not a member of this church, you are welcome to join us in communion. If you believe that Jesus has shown you the ultimate grace in forgiving your inability to love one another. Because we all have these stories, um, I'm sure as Tim is exhorting us and reminding us and encouraging us of grace, we also feel the pain of not giving grace. We feel the pain of, of guilt and not loving one another well. We feel the pain of hurt and harm when other people treat us without grace. We feel the sting of sin. And so this practice, this participation that we have of communion, we've got a table in the very back and on the sides, the bread on the trays is uh, gluten-free. But we practice this to remind ourselves that we are first forgiven. We are first loved. We are first seen. We are first known. We are first cared for and chased after and shown grace by the Father. And it is from this grace, it is from this love that we can then love one another. And so would you please join me at the table?